when I was in grad school, I took a course on Old Testament prophets. And about halfway through the course, the professor gives us this list of topics that we can choose from for our final project. And I looked at that list and saw the book of Obadiah, 21 verses, shortest book in the Old Testament, and thought, sold. It seemed like a far better option than Isaiah with 66 chapters. Um, but the joke was on me because as I got into the book of Obadiah and doing that project, what I discovered was that there was a lot there to unpack in 21 verses. And it was so rich and it was so deep and it is exactly the thing that makes it a perfect introduction to a sermon series that we're about to embark on during the season of Lent about the minor prophets. Now, the minor prophets are minor prophets not because they don't have anything good to tell us. They're minor prophets because they are short. But taken together, these prophets paint a picture of God's heart for justice, for the oppressed and the forgotten, for his deep longing to see his people repent and be restored for his faithfulness to his covenant promises and of his sovereignty as he works his good plan for restoration and redemption. And so during the season of Lent, our pastors are going to be taking us through some of the minor prophets, and this Sunday you get the Obadiah bonus. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Uh, if you have a tablet or a phone, that's fine. If you would like a hard copy of Scripture, if you'll raise your hand, someone will bring you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible for your own personal use at home, if you'll see Pastor Christy after the service, she will be more than happy to provide you with one. Now, um, Obadiah is about halfway, a little more than halfway through the Bible. You're going to be deep in the prophets, so like Daniel, Hosea... Joel, Amos, or you can do what I do and use the table of contents and the front of your Bible. So if you are there, we are going to read verse 17 and then 19 through 21. But on Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall take possession of those who dispossess them. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites who are in Halah shall possess Phoenicia, as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the towns of the Negev. Those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're actually going to back up and start with verse 1 and work our way through. So in verse 1, the very first thing that we discover is this is a prophetic vision that is given by the sovereign Lord to Obadiah. We don't know much about who Obadiah was. He does not give us a lot of information like his father's name or who the king was during his ministry that would help us link our Obadiah 
to any of the 12 other people in the Old Testament named Obadiah. But here's the one thing we know. His name means a servant of God. And think about that for a minute. What a legacy that is that thousands of years later, the one thing that we know about him is that he was a faithful servant of God. Our next question, and we're still in verse 1, is who or what in the world is Edom? And that's an important question because the reason this little short 21-verse book would resonate so strongly with those who heard it was they knew the backstory. They knew the context. And so for that answer, put something in your Bible where Obadiah is because you will never find it again and turn to Genesis 25. And we are going to read about twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now, a little bit of context, probably things that you already know. God had called this man named Abraham to leave his country and go to the promised land. And in that process, he had made a covenant with Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abraham subsequently has his son Isaac, and Isaac's wife, Rebecca, then gives birth to twin boys that were named Jacob and Esau. In a culture that is not just patriarchal, like men were in charge, but a culture that was also patrilineal, which is a very fancy way of saying that everything goes through the sons, passes through the sons, especially the firstborn son. The firstborn son is the one who receives a special blessing. He inherits a double portion um, over and above what his siblings get. And in that culture, imagine being a twin. I always thought being a twin would be cool. That here you are separated by minutes, maybe even seconds, from being that important firstborn. Um, it is something that was, was constantly, I think, on Jacob's mind. Scripture even tells us when he was born, he's like hanging onto his brother's heel, as though to say, you know, get back here. Let me go first. But I'm pretty sure that Jacob gave this a lot of thought over the course of his life. Because one day, when Esau comes home from hunting, not just hungry, but hangry, Jacob is ready. Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, he was called Edom. Edom in Hebrew means red. Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. But Jacob is not content with just getting the double portion. Oh, no. So in a couple more chapters, we're going to find out that Jacob disguised himself and tricked his father, Isaac, into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Okay, at this point, Esau has, like, had enough, decides he's going to kill his brother, and Jacob has to run for his life. 
Now, this story does have sort of a happy ending because eventually Jacob and Esau are reconciled. But the seeds of bitterness have already been firmly planted in that family. And as Jacob's descendants grow into the people of Israel and Esau's family grows into the people of Edom, there is just continual strife between the two peoples. Even as God is forming Israel into a nation and covenants with them that they will be his people as long as they will live up to his standards of justice and righteousness. It is a deal, we find out, that Israel consistently violates. And so by the time we get to Obadiah, God has had enough. He has allowed the kingdom of Israel to divide. Ten of the tribes have already been carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, never to be heard from again. And we have this tiny little remnant of two tribes called Judah. But now they have been conquered by the Babylonians, and they have, have been conquered with Edom, happily participating. And in the face of this terrible betrayal by their kinspeople, the sovereign Lord sends a message to Edom via Obadiah that he is coming for them. And that's verse 1. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Don't, don't get nervous. Um, but I warned you, there's a lot to unpack in this verse. So Edom clearly has a problem, and it has several, actually. But one of its problems, and the one that Obadiah seems most concerned with, is its pride. Verse 2 starts off this way. God is saying, I will make you small and will make you utterly despised. Now, why would God be so intent on humbling Edom? Edom, it turns out, has a lot to feel proud about. The Edomites physically lived high up on these sheer cliffs of red rock. Y'all may be able to see, is there a map behind me yet? No. There's a map. Um, as you can see, Petra, a city that will become famous for the buildings that are literally carved out of rock, lay within the territory of Edom. And so we know there were these huge stone cliffs. Um, scripture tells us in verses 3 and 4 that the Edomites lived like eagles high up on these cliffs. And more, more importantly, they said to themselves, no one can bring us down from here. It was an incredible military advantage. They always held the high ground in any battle, and they thought that they were invincible. But there was more. Edom was also proud of their wise men and the learning that they were known for. If y'all can stand one more map without, like, flashing back to seventh grade geography classes. There we go. That red line that you see up there is called the King's Highway. It was a very important trade route that ran through the territory of Edom and linked the two big superpowers of the day, Egypt and Mesopotamia. Both of these areas were home to incredibly advanced civilizations. They were not only wealthy because of the goods that they traded, 
but they were academically and intellectually rich. And these were civilizations that, that developed writing and astronomy that built the pyramids. And Edom was exposed to all of that learning and all of that knowledge. So in verse 8, when God says that he will destroy the wise out of Edom, he is actually referencing this intellectual tradition and the intellectual pride that they had. You combine all of that together and you've got a group of people who thought that they were stronger, they were smarter, they were richer and probably better looking than all the people around them, including Judah. And what does scripture tell us about pride? God hates pride. He opposes the proud. Pride has a lot of unpleasant and unfortunate consequences, but one that we seem to see here is that it has resulted in callousness and indifference to suffering and oppression. And that, says God, makes Edom just as bad as the actual oppressors. Look at verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. The prophet Amos tells us that during this time, Edom had abandoned all pity for those around them. It's maybe why Paul admonishes us in Philippians to be humble and to regard others as better than ourselves and to consider their interest above our own, to be like Jesus, to reflect God's heart for the poor and oppressed. And that is a message that we see not only in Obadiah, but we're going to see repeated through the minor prophets. You see, God had intended Israel to be the people who reflected his justice and his generosity into the world, and Israel had utterly failed in that undertaking, and they had begun to look more like the pagan and violent nations around them, like Edom, um, who had no regard for human life and for human suffering. And the prophets will find out in the next coming weeks, speak to that failing repeatedly. Uh, in the case of Edom, here in Obadiah, the story gets worse. So Edom starts out indifferent, but as we progress through verses 12, 13, and 14, their indifference turns to mocking and gloating over the misfortune of Judah, and then finally to participation. Edom entered Jerusalem, God's holy city, and literally picked over and took with them anything that the Babylonians had left. They stationed themselves on roads outside of Jerusalem, and they literally cut off the survivors as they attempted to flee. The injustice is just staggering to exploit your kindred while they are literally cut down wounded and bleeding, that we come to a turning point in verse 15. Um, this is the hinge, if you will, of Obadiah that tells us the day of the Lord is near. 
It is a phrase that we are getting here through many of the minor prophets. Joel, Amos, Malachi, and of course here in Obadiah. And it refers to the time in which God will intervene in human history to right injustice and to show himself to be a God of justice. As much as God hates pride, he maybe hates injustice even more. Throughout the Minor Prophets, the day of the Lord is the day that Israel and the nations surrounding them would be called to account for their injustice. And when that happens, when God meets out justice, and as we say, the punishment fits the crime. Look at verse 15 again. As it has been done to you, your deeds will return upon your own head. And it will be done not only to Edom, but to all of the nations who have been unjust and unrighteous. They will drink from the cup of God's wrath. In the case of Edom, if you jump back up for a minute to verses 5 through 7, what you'll find out is that everything is taken for Edom. The ones that took the very last scraps out of Jerusalem will themselves be stripped bare. And the people who turned on their brother Jacob are going to be sold out and betrayed by their friends and allies. The same idea pops up in verse 18 that tells us that the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau will be stubble. Now, this was as much a message to Judah, to Israel, as it was to Edom. And here's why. Israel's national identity was tied up in this idea that they were God's chosen people, that they had been uniquely selected to be the means by which God fulfilled his covenant with Abraham to bless all the nations. And, and central to that belief was this idea that God had sovereignly upset the sort of natural order of their society, and he had bypassed the elder son, Esau, and chosen Jacob to bring about the line of his people. You have to imagine that by the time they were defeated at the hands of the Babylonians, and then the added insult, the salt rubbed into the wound of Edom, betraying them as well, that Israel must have thought God had forgotten. God had forgotten them, and he had forgotten the promises that he had made, his covenant with Israel. But friends, that is not the case. God is faithful. He faithfully keeps his promises and his covenant. And that is another idea that we see expressed again and again through the minor prophets. It is who God is. It is literally how he introduces himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's why scripture tells us that he is faithful when we are not because he cannot deny who he is. And all evidence to the contrary, he hasn't forgotten the people of Israel. 
He is faithful and he is compassionate. Psalm 103 says this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers we are dust. In other words, he knows that we are both formed in his image and we are frail and we're fallible and we are prone to faithlessness. And so in the midst of Israel's rebellion, in the midst of them reaping the consequences of breaking their covenant relationship with God, God in his compassion offers them another chance again and again. If only Israel will turn back to him, God will bring restoration. Another thread that we see woven through the minor prophets. And his plans for restoration are happening even as he has allowed Israel to be conquered. While Obadiah is pronouncing doom on Edom, he is also speaking hope to Judah. In verse 17, that on God's holy mountain, Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. And it will be holy and Jacob will possess its inheritance. And it's not only Israel that is restored. Through this line of Jacob and his descendant Judah, God, faithful to his covenant to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, will eventually provide the means through Jesus that each of us can be restored to relationship with him. And we'll end here where we started with verse 21. Those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, Obadiah was not anticipating or prophesying the coming of Jesus, and yet Jesus is the fulfillment of his hope for Israel. The hope that one day there will be a kingdom that belongs to the Lord. And we are part of that kingdom. Colossians tells us that God has rescued us and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, the kingdom that belongs to the Lord. Um, in a few days, we are going to observe Ash Wednesday. And if you participate in that observance, you will come here to church, and one of the pastors will place ashes on your forehead. And like Psalm 103, remind us that we are from dust, and to dust we will return that we are frail and fallible and prone to unfaithfulness. And we will begin then a time of reflection and repentance that is Lent. And so as we together engage with these prophetic books during Lent, we're invited to hold them up to ourselves like a mirror reflecting our own lives, to see where we may have allowed bitterness to take root 
and to grow and to spread its poison far beyond the initial injury that we suffered, where we have allowed pride and self-sufficiency to turn into indifference, where our apathy has allowed suffering and injustice to flourish, where we have simply failed to just be kind to a brother or sister when they needed it most. Um, I don't know about you, but I know that I can probably check every one of those boxes. Perhaps as we sit with these prophets during this season of Lent, it can become a time for us to turn from indifference and to work for justice and restoration. You know, we attach so much heavy theological baggage to the word repentance when all it really means is a course correction. Repentance is simply this. It is changing our minds about what we've been doing and then changing our direction to turn away from those things that stand between us loving God and loving others fully, and instead turning our face toward a God whose face has already been turned to us. May we spend this season doing that as we engage these minor prophets and we anticipate the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Holy Father, during this season, would you allow us to see where it is that we need to course correct? Let your word to us be the illumination that we need. Father, we want only to follow you more faithfully and to love you more fully. In the name of your Son, our hope. Amen.